The scripture this morning comes from John 12, 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Good morning. I get to introduce our guest speaker today, and she's a good friend of mine. Marcia Florkey was commissioned as a deaconess in the United Methodist Church in 2001 and serves through Ginghamsburg United Methodist Church in Tip City. Marcia holds a master's degree in educational administration from University of Dayton and has also completed coursework at United Theological Seminary and New York Theological Seminary. Previously, Marcia served as the executive director of the New Path Program, a not-for-profit community development organization through Ginghamsburg United Methodist Church, and as the executive for international ministries with women and children within the United Methodist General Board of Global Ministries. Prior to that, Marcia was the executive director of the United Methodist Nomads Program. Currently, she serves as a consultant for United Methodist Women in the Office of Deaconess Home Missioner and is our president of Miami Valley District United Methodist Women. Marcia and her husband, Jim, have three grown children and four grandchildren, and together they enjoy traveling and serving in local and international mission. Help me in welcoming Marcia Florkey. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, last year, we tried this around this time, and we got snowed out. So um, you're hearing me now this time uh, in, in, spi in spite of the, the weather, which is beautiful here today. Last year, what I was going to speak on, a year later, was about the 150th a year or 150th birthday. I talked to you about that. And like most women, we don't want to have to keep adding those years of birthdays, right? Um, so we're just going to talk about that 150-year birthday that we celebrated uh, as United Methodist Women that also includes all the predecessor organizations that leads into uh, the formation of that. Now, United Methodist Women have been, a long, uh, been around for a long time, obviously, and they began as a way to care for those people who often lack the basic necessities of life, who suffered from very simple needs, such as lack of nutritious food or water, who didn't have access to basic education or primary health care, or who even had a safe place to live. United Methodist Women and, again, all these predecessor organizations served through not only donating themselves, but donating their money to be able to provide for others 
and not just over there in other parts of the world like we always think of, but even right here in our own communities. But let me get back to that 150 years because I, I think it's fascinating when we think of the time frame of that, which would have been 1869. So it was in 1869 in Boston, Massachusetts that these women came together and felt that there was a call in their lives to go beyond what they were doing as good church women, right? So it was a rainy, stormy evening. They had sent out invitations to 24 of the local Methodist Episcopal churches in their area, expecting that maybe they would get 50 or 100 women. Well, because of the weather, only eight showed up. But they sat there in the Tremont Methodist Episcopal Church in Boston and heard the story of the wives of missionaries who had just returned from India. It was Mrs. William Butler, Mrs. Edwin Parker, and they told about the desperate conditions of women in India because during that time frame, women of India could not receive an education. They were banned from any kind of education beyond basic literacy. Also, they could not be attended to by male doctors. And so they had no health care because guess what? Women couldn't be doctors in India. So they only had midwives and some sort of like, you could say nurse practitioners to help the local women. So it was almost non-existent for the women in India in 1869 to have health care or to have education. Well, the wives of these missionaries from the Methodist Episcopal Church just thought that was outrageous. So that's what they came together to say to these women, these eight women from Boston, could you help us raise money so that we can send women missionaries and a woman doctor to serve the women in India? Well, they were greatly inspired, and they decided that, yes, they would take on the task. And so they found two single-trained, dedicated women who were able to provide medical care and educational work to the women in India. And in fact, in just two months, in the May of 1869, at their very first annual meeting of this newly founded Women's Foreign Missionary Society, they were able to support Dr. Clara Swain, who became uh, the first woman doctor in uh, Barley, India, and Isabella Thoborn, who, by the way, is from Ohio. Um, she opened up the first school for girls in Lucknow, India. Methodist women in those few short months got something done, and they were excited to be able to share not only their faith, but also their resources with the women in India. But let's get back to that date of 1869, because I think it's absolutely fascinating when we think 150 years ago what we even had or didn't have here in the United States. We were just four years from the ending of the Civil War, and we know that Reconstruction and all of the, the political and economic things that were happening in our country made life a little tough. We had come through the assassination of a president who was well-loved. And we had just started, and just completed actually, the first transcontinental railroad. So think in 1869, they put that final golden stake into the railroad tracks that connected the East Coast with the West Coast, just 150 years ago. 
This was the first time that women could come together and had come together to organize in the church because women were not allowed to handle any leadership positions in the church at that time. In fact, women were not allowed to be ordained. Um, they could not even in their own way hold the money. So one of the women who started the women's organization actually had to find uh, a sympathetic male, one of, uh, I believe her husband, to support this cause and hold the bank account for them. The women couldn't open a bank account. They could not own property. They could not vote. They could not be in any way in leadership in the local government. We don't think of the obstacles those women had 150 years ago just to organize for mission, and yet they persevered. Add to that that the women didn't have the modern conveniences that we have today. There were no phones or electric much to speak of, so all of the work was done by hand, so which made it even harder in when we think of time consumption that would be needed to uh, take care of a home, take care of children, and to do all those necessities of life. But through it all, these women of this newly formed Women's Foreign Mission Society were able to raise over $22,000 just two years later, which may not sound a lot to us right now, but during that time was a lot of money. And only 10 years later succeeded in raising over $100,000 and were sending missionaries that founded schools and hospitals not only in India, but in China, Mexico, South America, Japan, and Bulgaria. But at that same time, they were also raising funds to start community centers and settlement houses in the United States. They began the Deaconess Training Program and uh, worked with their conferences to start uh, uh, consecrating deaconesses for the workers around centers and in the community centers. And they founded schools and hospitals around the continent. Anyone ever heard of the Deaconess Hospital in Cincinnati? Yep, that was one of ours originally. I could go through numerous institutions in the United States that were founded by deaconesses and women of, these, of our various mission societies, both in the, the Methodist Episcopal Church and in the Brethren Churches as well, as well. In fact, it got to the point so that when the men looked at what the women were doing, they began to think, hmm, they're getting a lot of traction out there. They're raising an awful lot of money. We're not sure the little ladies can do this big task. So they wrote a nice letter to the women in, the, in, in 1882 that said, we would be happy for you to raise the money and we will administer it for you. Well, the women didn't think that was something they wanted to do. So they held on to it and were able to find, again, those men who were sympathetic to their cause to help them keep everything going and um, they, again, began to double and even triple the amount of funds and the missionaries that they were sending out. But this brings me now to the scripture that, the, that was read in the Gospel of John. In this remarkable story, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, takes a very expensive bottle of perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet. She does this as a sign of respect and a sign of worship. But this story is even more, and this is how I feel it relates to United Methodist women and the women of this time period. It was about giving the gift of all. This was all that, that she had. This would have been her dowry. So you're thinking Mary is giving up her dowry, which back in biblical times would have been everything to her. That would have allowed her to marry. 
And yet she broke that jar, she poured it on Jesus' feet, and she gave him something that normally she would need for herself. She offered it to Jesus as an expression of love and her faith. But I think this story is also about Jesus' acceptance of her extravagant gift. She affirmed, or Jesus affirmed to her all that what Mary's future was going to bring to her. He saw it as a welcoming gift, as a way that she could show to others her love and how she served others. Mary's faith is the sweet fragrance that fills the room as she recognizes Jesus as Messiah, as her Lord, but also as her friend. But you know, the story is also about remembrance. And, Jesus, and while Judas judges her for wasting her money and points that it would have been better given to the poor, Jesus says that the poor will always be with us, but that the whole world will remember what Mary did. It is important that we remember that as we think of the women of the Methodist and the Brethren women who later on formed many different societies to help others, it's not so much of what they are doing at the time, but it's also how we remember them and how we can act upon what they have shown us to do. In fact, Mary's sacrifice is a generous sacrifice, and it's a living sacrifice, often what's referred to in March 12, um, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 where Paul writes, Dear friends, God is good, so I beg you to offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, pure and pleasing. That's the most sensible way to serve God. Don't be like the people of this world, but let God change the way you think. Then you will know how to do everything that is good and pleasing to God. Mary gave everything she had as a sacrifice. She also gave everything that she could have been to Jesus. And that was more precious than any other gift she could have given. She sacrificed the possibility of future marriage. She gave away all she was and all she would be. And that's what I think of when they gave everything they had. Gave away their status, gave away everything they knew that was familiar to them. Maybe 150 years ago, isn't so long for you and me in some senses because what we can do to remember how we can offer ourselves as that living sacrifice. How do we offer our lives and possessions as living sacrifices? You know, I used to often think that the, that the word sacrifice was something that would be difficult and, and awful to endure, thinking what it would mean to be a martyr or to be a sacrificial victim. But I looked that word up, and I realized the essence of the word sacrifice also means to just let go or to forego or surrender. And sometimes we need to take that perception in what we do as we serve, just to simply surrender who we are and what we have to Christ and let Jesus do the work in us. For me, that sacrifice at one point in my life was letting go of an occupation and a career that I was very comfortable in. And when I took on um, my sacrifice of, of going through the process of becoming the deaconess, I also knew it meant something more, that maybe Jesus was speaking to me in a deeper way. And at, at the age of, in my 40s, I think we were, of leaving my comfortable space here where we lived in this area of Miami Valley and living in New York City for quite a few years, which was a total different environment. And yet I learned and grew so much from those years. 
because offering yourself as a sacrifice can do that. It can teach you, and God will teach you. So when I reflect upon the action of those eight women in 1869 on that dark and stormy night, I think of how their faith and their sacrificial giving brought the light and hope of Jesus Christ to millions of people in the past 150 years, and I am struck with awe and wonder for their actions. I don't think they totally understand gathering together what was going to happen in the next 150 years. I don't think they realized the struggles they were going to have and the, the, the worries about patriarchal institutions and discrimination of their gender for what there was going to happen. I'm not sure they got all of that, but what they did know was obedience to God and how, as they organized for mission, they developed a supportive community for the women around them. So through the past 150 years, United Methodist Women has evolved and grew through the mergers of our many predecessor organizations. So let me just give you a little light about some of these. I noticed on the banner when I came in that you were, a, you were a, a originally a United Brethren in Christ, and that's really fascinating um, because in this particular area, we had several women who were deaconesses that were consecrated through the United Brethren in Christ. Um, one of those women I've done a lot of research on because her story fascinated me. Her name was Mary Susan Geeting. She was born in 1882 near Gratis, Ohio. So if you know where that is, over in Preble County. Her family were just farmers. They were immigrant, immigrant German uh, people coming in, but they were very strong um, brethren in Christ. In fact, her father was one of the, the uh, elders of the area. And as a little girl, she grew up wanting to become an elder or a pastor herself. Well, somewhere in her early teens, her father and her pastor had to tell her quite uh, succinctly that she was a woman, she couldn't be a pastor. And so heartbroken, she still said, but God is calling me to something. And I don't think God would call me to something if there wasn't something out there for me to do. And so that's when she found out about the work of deaconesses, and she became trained at Otterbein College, graduating from there, and then on to Cincinnati to the, the Gamble Training School, which was started by a little guy named Gamble, who with his partner Proctor had this little soap company in Cincinnati. Um, and so they started this training school for deaconesses uh, by, uh, by memorizing uh, Elizabeth Gamble. And so it's really fascinating how her story intertwines with the story here, because I've read in some of the historical documents that she would have generated to all the local Brethren in Christ churches. So there's a good chance she would have been here telling of her work that she was doing in rural Indiana and later in Cheviot, which was considered outside of Cincinnati a little rural town that had lots of bars and no churches. Um, so the Brethren in Christ started a church under her leadership there. So it's fascinating the way these facts can all weave together because we don't always think in United Methodist Women that where, where our impact really is. I found out as I worked in New York how our organizations came about by serving women who needed educations. So often we would, serve, we would offer scholarships to women who wanted to become nurses and doctors and then they could return to their hometowns and their home areas to bring medical care to there. In 1875, Lizzie Hoffman was instrumental in forming the Women's Missionary Association of the United Brethren Church right here in the Dayton area. 
Jeeves was one of the predecessor organizations, began the work in Sierra Leone. And I, if you remember, the Brethren Church was very active in Sierra Leone in Western Africa and still has a very strong presence there today through the Methodist Church. Other women's missionary societies were formed in 1880 in the Methodist Episcopal Church uh, and in the Methodist Episcopal Church South. And in 1879, the Methodist Protestant Church was founded, uh, founded the Women's Foreign Missionary Society. So there's many, many ways that these women came together and formed these organizations to do the work that was neglected by some of the other foreign mission organizations. As those all came together through different mergers of the church in the, eight, in the 1800s, in the 1940s, and then in 1968, it was the United Methodist Women that was formed in 1973 that brought all of these together under one organization. They, take, they kept many parts of what the women had already been doing and then enlarged to become an organization, the women of the church. So that's when our, our organization began to really look out for the spiritual nurture of growing that spiritual uh, presence of every woman and of also going into the idea of social action so that we would look around us and see where there's injustice in the world and be prepared to fight for justice for all people. By putting faith into action, United Methodist women have followed the United Methodist Church social principles and the Book of Discipline by committing to the understanding that God's world is one world. We commit ourselves to the achievement of a world community that is a fellowship of persons who honestly love one another and love God. United Methodist women pledge ourselves to seek the meaning of the gospel in all issues that divide people and threaten the growth of world peace. Because of that commitment, in the past 150 years, United Methodist women have realized that we are all part of a beloved community, but that we also must keep watch because it is so easy for us to go by the wayside and not always have our eyes open and ready to see what is happening in the lives of other women, children, and youth around the world. So as we advocate for peace, it's just not about peacekeeping, it's about peacemaking. And that means offering justice to women and children and youth on all levels of society. In 1978, United Methodist Women were the first denominational women's group to develop a charter for racial justice that was adopted by the 1980 General Conference of the United Methodist Church. United Methodist Women put their faith into action. Spiritual growth has also been a long-held part of the work of United Methodist Women and is an expression of our personal and, and communal commitment to see Christ in work in the world. Spiritual growth is an active engagement. It is not static or stagnant. It moves, it's pushed against, it's molded, and it's shaped in our hands and in our hearts. The revolution in the world for Christ begins with a revolution within us. United Methodist women put our faith into action. We put our hope into action by supporting programs and scholarships for women. We offer over 73 different scholarships for women in over 110 countries, offering programs in education, evangelism, health care, and empowerment, and leadership of women. We must remember that many parts of the world, women are still denied basic human rights. 
denied health care, denied the ability to be a voice in their community through political and government actions, and even in maternal and child health care, which even in our own country, and even here in the Miami Valley, is a concern even now, where mothers and babies don't get the, always the health care they need. We also have eight regional missionaries. These are women who are in their indigenous areas, serving in Africa, in South America, the Caribbean, and Asia, who are leaders in their own communities and regions who train other women to become leaders and community developers. Again, United Methodist women putting their hope into action. Finally, United Methodist women put their love into action by caring for women, children, and youth in poverty situations, by supporting these initiatives for children in maternal health care, but also providing support for over 95 local community centers and organizations in the United States. We have several of those in West Ohio, many of them, two of them very close here. Um, we have the Wesley Community Center in Dayton that is a, a mission institution of United Methodist Women and the Community Development for All People in Columbus, which is also formerly the South Side Settlement House. Friendly Centers in Toledo that we support and Wesley Education Center in Cincinnati, all mission institutions of United Methodist Women. United Methodist Women and predecessor organizations also work to begin the Deaconess Movement in 1888. And as I said earlier, that was who Susan Geating was a part of. And then later they added home missioners, which are men, laymen, and home missionaries. Home missionaries came out of our brethren tradition. As of right now, there are 421 active and retired deaconesses, home missionaries, and home missioners who serve all over the United States. At our peak, there was over 800 deaconesses serving in the early 1900s, and Mary Geating would have been one of those. But what happened later on as our, our movement grew and the deaconess movement grew, they also, when women became finally able, the ability to be ordained, those, that number kind of dropped off because now women could ser serve as ordained uh, clergy. But through that all, and through all of that work of the United Methodist Women, they were showing love in action. We support so many things throughout the United States. I could probably stand up here for hours telling you about all of the lives that have been touched through the work over the years. But what I'm leaving you with is how United Methodist Women respond and act on their faith through hope and love, offering a supportive community to their local women, but also providing opportunities for spiritual growth, serving others, and bringing the light and love of Jesus to all that we touch. Like the women from 1869, we want to continue to create a legacy that will carry the mission of faith, hope, and love and action forward to the world in years to come. Just as Mary, who anointed Jesus and brought the fragrance of perfume as her offering of faith and love to him, what can we do to bring the fragrance of Jesus to our world today? Join with United Methodist Women, and let's get started on our future. And let's continue to serve the God who so graciously gave of himself through Jesus Christ to provide that opportunity. Can we just end with prayer? God, we thank you so much for the...
for the lives of Mary, for the lives of Mary Geating in her own way through those years of serving others in her work as deaconess. We thank you for the opportunity to come together to celebrate United Methodist women now and in for the future to come. For there is work to be done and our hands are offered today as a living sacrifice to you to serve others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.